Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis LA and DubLab. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hi, this is Ruha. Hello, Ruha Benjamin. This is Paul Holdengraber calling you from the quarantine tapes. I'm so very, very delighted that you took the time to take our call and that you're part of this program. How are you this Hi, afternoon? Hello, hello. I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for calling. It's such a pleasure. Um, if I may ask you, how, how have you been spending these last seven delirious months of this incredible pandemic. Well, I'm here in central Jersey in Princeton with my family, my two teenage sons, my husband, Sean. Um, we started beekeeping over these months and I'm spending a lot of time with my students online teaching and writing. How is the teaching? Uh, I hear, I've, I've spoken to a number of professors um, and I, I would say it's a split, uh, a split view. For some, it's delightful. Yeah. And for some, it's... Yeah it's delightful and terrible and for some it's just terrible how is it for you for me teaching is always a bomb a b-a-l-m um just because it's a time where i can share and process um the world and what's happening with my students uh, in a space where you know we can think critically but we can also try to imagine other other ways of being other ways of of ordering the world. And so the, the times when I'm not teaching are when I feel more alone in that process. And so I always look forward to it. Now, the issue of remote teaching is yes. another is another dimension. And I think the way that I would describe it is we're, you know, it, it's about kind of um, extending grace to one another. And mm. so they are patient with me. I am extra patient with them. The same kind of um, uh, intensity that often characterizes teaching in person and the kind of deadlines and and that sort of thing um, have sort of been shed away during this time. And it's more about really extending grace to one another. And, you know, I have students who have had parents that have passed away have had family members sick who are experiencing housing instability, who have lost their jobs. So in all of that, the deadlines and the writing assignments and all of that is not just secondary, but it's tertiary. It comes way, way beyond all of the real life crises that they're facing. And so it's just a, a time, I think, to hold hold space for one another. I think I see that as what's happening. Uh, Rua, given, given your specialization, this is also very interesting, this remote teaching. I imagine that, that you have thoughts about it, um, the, the amount of time that people now spend online. We've, we've, we've so often wanted our children, maybe younger than students at university, to spend less time on screens. Mm. But we can't, we, can't, we can't quite see that now, right? I had, no. a, I had a conversation with Sherry Turkle um, about this very issue, and it, it's really... It's really complicated, and I'm wondering, you know, on the spot, and probably you've thought about this very much, 
some of your reflections and thoughts about this moment, not in regards to the grace, which is so beautiful how you phrase that, I won't forget, but in regards to the technology we use in order to impart information and learning, and perhaps even if we're lucky, wisdom. Uh, Absolutely. And so, you know, I mean, one of the things we did on the first day of my class was we tried to find ways to be co-present with each other through the screen. And so we did an an exercise where each of us took turns um, moving our hands and our bodies and our our upper bodies in different directions and everyone else had to follow that person. And so we went around as as a way to say that, yes, we're virtual, but we're also trying to create co-presence. Likewise, with my lab students in the Just Data Lab, we kind of share what's in our space with each other. If we have a candle burning or a cup of tea that's brewing. And so even through the remote technology, we're trying to reach through the screen and, um, and experience one another and yet we are all on this platform that's privately owned <laughs> and right, so right. one thing that happened about midway through the summer with my with the with the lab was that zoom suddenly announced that it would um, have the pro- prerogative to share anything that was on the platform with law enforcement and if you were using the platform for free it could share your da- your data uh, you could share your, the videos with um, law enforcement but if you're paying for for it, then your data would be protected. And so there was this moment where we shifted all of our work off of Zoom because of that policy. But within a week, people from all over the country sort of rallied against that two-tiered use of the of the system where those who are using it for free would be more, more uh, surveilled. And quickly, Zoom within a week reversed course. And so that was just a reminder that although we're all, we don't have much choice in moving towards Zoom and using Zoom, we can collectively begin to impress upon these private companies our own demands and and, and protections. And so I, I saw in that week the way that a collective organizing against that particular surveillance policy actually worked and they reversed course so that our all of our data is protected uh, to some extent on the platform. And so the, it varies, you know, in terms of how uh, any given day or every any given class, how well it's going. But one of the things I think that was really pronounced in the first few weeks of the pandemic was when public public schools K through 12 were forced to quickly pivot online. And then, you know, major public school systems like New York and L.A. and others realized how many of their students not only didn't have access to computers at home or devices in order to access, but that were experiencing housing, were, were homeless, you know. And so in that way, it really shines a light on these existing crises that affected people's lives well before this virus hit. So this pandemic, in, 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 in a way, has, has brought to the fore even more in a more pronounced way for everyone to see. Absolutely, the, the across so many. The incredible inequities. Yes, whether it's housing or education or healthcare or policing. It's the, the lights are being turned all the way on. And so the question is, now that we see it, what are we going to do? Well, <laughs> what sense will we make of it? <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 I hope we discuss it a little bit. Um, I, I, I wish, you know, I always think of Mark Twain, who said that it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> you, you, you recently said it is the case that inequity and injustice are woven into the very fabric of our societies. Then that means each twist, coil, and code is a chance for us to weave new patterns, practices, and politics. The vastness of the problem will be its undoing once we accept that we are pattern makers. I'd love you to unpack that. Such a rich comment. Sure. So, you know, I'm trained as a sociologist, and in that training, I've uh, sort of uh, put my attention initially more on the kind of big transformations that have to happen in our society, the big institutional changes, policy changes. But in recent years, I've shifted focus a bit to think about what, what adds up to those big changes. What do we need to do in the nooks and crannies of our everyday lives when there's no audience, when there's no hashtag or attention, when no one is looking in the small print and how all of those smaller habit decisions, practices add up to big things. And so that's true in the case of negative formations, negative processes, but more and more I'm trying to be deliberate about writing and thinking, speaking and teaching about the, the patterns that can add up to good, you know, positive, just transformations. And so the idea of patterns and pattern making comes from my study of the work of Octavia Butler and her science fiction yes. and the way that the pattern master and pattern makers runs throughout her work. And so, you know, it's not just science fiction. It's really our everyday lives of world building. So she was doing fictional world building, but all of us are world builders to some extent. And so how can we become more deliberate about the patterns that we're either producing because someone taught it to us and we continue it unquestioned or perhaps we can take more agency and begin to change the patterns of thought and behavior and interaction that can perhaps help us shift gears in terms of the kind of world that we're creating. Octavia Butler. I can't tell you how many times in the quarantine tapes for the last seven months she's come up. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're reaching the moment. I think, uh, I, I think some of her work takes place in a year or two mm. from now. And it's, That's right. just, it's just so wonderful to hear her invoked again and again and again. And you, you mentioned, in a way, literature, and you've said this wonderful thing that I have to read, forgive me. <laughs> Speculation is a process of re-envisioning and hence revising the past, present, and future. It involves mm. questioning taken for granted assumptions about how the world is put together and fashioning counter-narratives. It is a stubborn refusal to accept the dominant stories of how things were, how they are, how they will be. And this is a line I love so much. I consider social science and speculative fiction complementary modes of thinking, whereas social science offers tools to read reality, speculative fiction cultivates an imagination to change it. Tell me more. Yeah, I've been really becoming more interested 
curious and um, deliberate about this this idea of imagination, that it's not this kind of ephemeral afterthought that is just up in the air. But in many ways, imagination is a battleground. It's a social arena. It's a set of practices. There are people who are paid big bucks to try to mold our imagination. And to, me- to a great extent, many people are forced to live in the imagination that others have created, those right. that have the resources and monopoly. So imagination is a terrain of struggle. And if we're not um, really uh, sort of conscious about its construction, then we default to just living in the imagination that has, you know, been created around us. And so in many ways, I think I see social movements, whether it's the Poor People's Campaign or the Movement for Black Lives, as struggles, not just over policy, not just over material resources, but really struggle to bring to life a different imagination about the world and what we, how we can live together in the world. And so um, in that way, I would just say that imagination is not simply the purview of those who consider themselves artists or creatives. It is the purview of everyone. <laughs> and so everyone should have some stake in the kind of imaginaries that are being produced, designed, um, materialized, whether materialized in our technology or materialized in our pedagogy, wherever it is, underneath the, the things that seem very logical and systemic and empirical, there lies someone's or some people's imagination that's animating that, that thing that's on the surface. You use the word struggle. It's so hard, though. I, I, I was thinking of Thoreau's incredible line, I think, where he says, men have become the tools of their tools. How do we resist? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that. Or, or uh, to, to give you another one that I, I, I love so much is W.H. Auden said, we are lived by powers we pretend to understand. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. And so this is what I've been writing about really over the last few years. Indeed. And specifically about all of the kind of shiny new promises of emerging technologies, AI and automated systems that are really making consequential decisions about people's lives in all areas of our lives, whether we know about it or not, whether we go to apply for a loan for a home or go to get our, you know, our treatment at the hospital or get pulled over by the police behind the scenes are so many different kinds of technical systems that for many, we may might assume that those are neutral or objective, that they're asocial and apolitical. But in fact, human beings had to create it, had to design it, train it how to make decisions, train it how to create predictions. And so it's really about pulling back the screen and looking at who are these human agents and agencies that are shaping these systems so that we can begin to challenge the decisions, challenge the assumptions that are being encoded into so many areas of our lives. Without us even really realizing, you've said race itself is a kind of tool or technology. How so? What, What do you mean by that? So as part of expanding our imagination about this relationship between society and technology, I think we have to explore what we think of as technologies. It's not just the hardware and software that's sold to us out of Silicon Valley, but human beings are tool makers. And those tools aren't just things we can hold in our hand, but there are also social tools. And here, tools is just a really broad way of talking about, you know, devices that we 
used to and to create things in the world. And so a social tool like race has been used to not only stratify society and, and create forms of wealth on one side and impoverishment on the other, but in some cases it can really create parallel universes where we can be looking at the same thing, but because of the entire social world that's been created around us, we can see dramatically different things in front of us depending on the the universe that we have. And race to a large extent has created that. And we see certainly during the pandemic, the parallel universes of the people who haven't had the luxury to socially distance right. have had to continue to work in environments where, you know, even the basic personal protective equipment hasn't been available to the people who are, you know, have the luxury of building new pools in their backyard and having right. everything catered to them and have the bunkers built under their homes and have their squash courts underground and <laughs> like you know like and, so and on and on worlds, and on yeah and on and on and it's like you know and the the people who have had to continue to work they're delivering the services and allowing the the functioning of this the socially distanced universe and so race class you know many other forms of stratification work together to create in a sense these parallel universes and in that case we can think of race as a tool that in many cases becomes embedded in other and other kinds of devices like redlining maps that our federal government used to segregate our nation or restrictive covenants that gave homeowners the ability to bar African-Americans from moving into certain neighborhoods. So race as a technology then becomes embedded in these more hands-on technologies that are then used to continue to segregate and stratify our world. I, you, you write in Race After Technology about data fusion centers, one of the <laughs> most pernicious sites of the new gym code. Rua, what, what, what happens in those centers? <laughs> what, is being, yeah. what is being fused? Yes, exactly. And if I knew the answer to that, perhaps we could go and shut them down. And so right. I think part of the, part of the power <sighs> yeah. of these fusion centers is precisely their, the sense in which they're black boxed, in which the average citizen is not allowed entry, is not allowed to know exactly what is happening inside of them. What we know, and by the name we understand, is that data is being gathered in our cities on in every area in terms of sensors, in terms of facial recognition, um, in terms of license plate readers. And so all kinds of data are being brought together, more analog, old school types like license plate information that are being cross-checked and mapped onto other types that are more novel when it comes to biometrics and facial recognition. And so even and my sense is that it's not even even necessary that there be a, a specific immediate purpose for all this data. It's just the power of being able to amass it in the case that it will be necessary to catch a bad guy, for example. And so the premise around the, the origin of these data fusion centers really comes out of the war on terror. That was the initial justification right. that allowed so much resources to be poured into it. But of course, that is a pretext that allows a much more per pernicious kind of surveillance on on people's lives um, domestically. So a lot of times these initiatives, they use the fear and the concern around some particular tragic event in order to advocate for resources that are then poured into our law enforcement. So you have LAPD and you have NYPD and other police departments that have jumped on that wagon right. to say, okay, there's resources for this, so let's create 
create these these sites that allow for mass surveillance to 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 continue. Yeah, you you write crime prediction algorithms should more accurately be <laughs> called crime production algorithms. Mm -hmm. Uh, what, does right. that, what does that mean? Because you need to justify why are billions of dollars going spent. towards being spent on this. And so if you were collecting all this data and there was no, you know, there was very little to show for it in, the, in terms of incarcerating people and pulling people over, you have to, in many cases, manufacture the reasons that justify the incredible expense of these, not just data fusion, but all kinds of surveillance and policing tools. And so we shouldn't assume that the investment in these in these um, technologies correlate to a, a spike in crime. In many cases, they don't. And so we have to keep an eye on how crime is produced in order to justify the expense of, of so many of these technologies used by law enforcement. And so the idea there is also with with these algorithms, we will we will know where where crime most likely will happen. Right, the elements of prediction. And so, if let's say for the last forty years, you know, I grew up partly in Los Angeles, and so yes. in a heavily policed neighborhood. And so, if for the last forty years the police have concentrated their work in that neighborhood, and the arrest rates show a high rate of crime in this neighborhood the, as a function of the concentration of police, and that data is used to train the algorithm how to make predictions about future crimes, then it follows that where policing have spent time before, that will be necessarily where they are told that's where crime is. So that's where you should continue to patrol. Whereas where I worked at UCLA, you know, in the upper middle class neighborhood, predominantly white and Persian neighborhoods, where police are, are not patrolling the streets, are not pulling youth over, are not lining them up on the fence to pat them down. So the crime rates are not going to be as high. You feed that data into the system and then you'll be, to you'll be told, don't, you know, that's not a high risk area. You don't need to spend time there. So the important point is that the, the data that's used to train automated systems, it reflects the past much more than it is predicting the future. We're back to the notion of, of, of prediction, as, as we spoke about before. You've spoken about IBM's role in building technologies later used in the Holocaust. I'm wondering, mm. to what extent do you see that history as a cautionary tale? It's absolutely a sobering cautionary tale. And I think for me, the most important lesson is the way that a bureaucracy of evil requires people to just clock in and out, put their heads down. Not ask too many questions. Don't look at the big picture. And so this division of labor that really enrolled thousands of people in this project of mass death didn't only rest on some bad boogeyman to carry out this work. It required the complicity and the consent of so many more people. And so the, the question for us today is when we're creating new data tools, when we're creating new technologies, are we looking at the big picture? Are we thinking about the ends to which these technologies are being placed, whether we're talking about um, immigrant enforcement and ICE's use of surveillance technologies or the everyday policing of black communities, I think it's the responsibility not only of the people who are using these tools, but those who are creating them. So the, the, the corollary would be the people working in IBM at right. that time to ask, what is this being used for? And so I think it's really heartening to see more and more tech workers raising those questions. There's a great hashtag called Tech Won't Build It. 
And these are tech workers that are saying are refusing to just do their jobs <laughs> and they're petitioning, they're walking out, they're, they're calling their, you know, the, the higher ups in their company to say, we care about what we're building. We're creating, we're creating right. all this wealth and money and we're not going to build tools that are going to be used to re-entrench racist violence and xenophobia and surveillance. You know, when, when I was a much younger man in, in Europe, we were asked to write what we called at that point in the French uh, system, uh, little dissertations. You were given a sentence, hmm. a quote which probably began my quotomania, you were given a sentence <laughs> and you had to write four or five pages about it. And it was this little sentence of Rabelais where he says, Science sans conscience n'est que ruine de l'âme. Science without conscience mm. is but the ruin of the soul. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. It reminds me also of, um, you know, something that Martin Luther King said, which is that we have guided missiles and misguided missiles men. And so this this idea that wisdom, wisdom is an essential component of any kind of world building, especially that which includes powerful scientific and technological tools. It's not something that we can consider an afterthought or you bring in at the very end of a process, but wisdom is important in the questions that we pose at the very beginning that we want technology to address and answer. So it's at that point of posing questions that we need much more wisdom. We need we need much more democratic participation. We need much more historical and social literacy. That is a com- component, a crucial component of technological design. You've thought a, a great deal about what you call informed refusal. Is such a thing even possible? Do you think in hmm. the realm of technology? And if so. How? Help us. I really think of informed refusal as something that has to be enacted collectively more than individually. So, for example, the Techno Build It um, movement, I I see it falling under the umbrella because these are tech workers that are refusing to build certain things that are deemed harmful through a collective process of using their power, not simply as individual workers, but as thinking about their role in a larger institutional organizational structure. And so while it may not seem possible on the grandest scale for us to refuse certain kinds of racial capitalist processes, I think on a smaller scale, we see individual, we see groups uh, sort of experimenting with refusal. And I think of it as a necessary corollary to what we call informed consent. The problem with just talking about informed consent is we assume that with information, people will consent. But in fact, with information, you might be more likely to want to refuse because you have an understanding of where this this particular thing is going. And so informed refusal to me is a crucial dimension of power. You don't have real power if you can't refuse, if you can't say no to something. And unfortunately, so much of our world is structured around choices between worst and worser or (laughs) two, two bad options. And I say this, of course, you know, thinking about not just the political context, but in so many arenas where people are given a false choice. You can do this or you can have this. And neither option is good. And so what does it mean to actually try to imagine and carve out third, fourth, fifth options in terms of the kinds of not just product, but worlds that we want to live in? Rua, in, in closing, sadly, 
I of course have to ask you to comment on Arundhati Roy. You you speak about about uh, the, a portal, and she speaks so potently about the pandemic perhaps being a portal. I will read the the relevant passage from Arundhati Roy, and then I would love you to say what comes to your mind at this moment, right now. Mm. She says, historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. Hmm. The crucial phrase for me is we can choose. And so nothing is inevitable. The pandemic will not necessarily bring us closer together, will not necessarily let us see the light see all of these fault lines so that we might change it. It might re-entrench social hierarchies. It might create more monopolies and, uh, you know, uh, concentrations of wealth and power. But we can choose to go in one direction or another. And I think it's that element of being deliberate, being vigorous about the world that we want, whether we want the dystopian version or whether we want the utopian version. I think we have to collectively decide and really try to enact and bring about the changes that we not just want, but really need that people's lives depend upon. And so I would just encourage us not to take anything for granted and not think of anything as inevitable, whether for bad or good, and that every day we have to choose, we can choose. And, and in your mind, what is most important in terms of not only the choice we make, but the change we need? The most important thing for me is to understand that there are powerful forces working to break society in a very little literal sense. And mm. so this unit of analysis, again, I'm a sociologist, yes. this very unit of analysis, society, we can't take it for granted that we live in a society. <laughs> we have to actually create and recreate what that means. And so it's crucial that each of us understands that we're contributing to either the ripping apart of our social fabric or the, the weaving together, the stitching together in the small choices that we make, but also in the grand things that we stand for. And all the while understand that if we take it for granted, that it will likely fall apart. It will likely be broken because there are people working overtime in order to ensure that we don't have this cohesion that we need, this sense of unity, the sense that we owe each other something in the way that we live our lives. And so I would just encourage us to figure out how each day we can we can try to stitch some some heart together, some relationships together, whether it's in our own families, our neighborhoods, our institutions, our workplaces, and not take it for granted that, that this thing we call society will be there tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now. Rua Benjamin, it's been it's been a real pleasure, a delight, a privilege to speak with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Stay My safe pleasure. and all the best. Thank you so much, Paul. Have a good one. You Take too. care. Bye bye. Bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support. Uh-huh.